ERP is going to become a much more integrated, agile, configurable, and AI-enabled platform. So what I mean by that is the connection to outside systems, information data, whether it's your CRM, other external data, will become much more infused into the ERP. The ability to change what you need out of your ERP, leveraging AI generative models, is going to become much more of a day-to-day -day common use of the ERP. And so therefore, the user experience is going to be much more flexible in the future. Welcome to the Future of ERP podcast. My name's Richard Howells, and I'm a Vice President for Thought Leadership for SAP's ERP Finance and Supply Chain Solutions. Today, we'll be discussing what is probably the most talked about topic in business at the moment, AI, and specifically the impact of AI on the modern enterprise. And to do this, I'm excited to be joined by Dan Hoffman from IBM, David Dixon from TrueCore, an IBM company, and Kevin McCollum from SAP. Gentlemen, welcome to the Future of ERP podcast. Could you introduce yourselves and say a little bit about why the topic of AI is important to you? And maybe we'll start with David. Sure. I'm a partner at Truqua, an IBM company. We were acquired in November of 2020, fully integrated now into IBM, but I still run the Truqua practice. And as finance transformation specialists, we're always looking ahead and understanding the roadmap of where business wants to go, our customers want to go, as well as the vendor and ecosystem. And Obviously, this is a big topic that's reshaping almost everything. It's square right in the central of, of everything that we do. Happy to be having this conversation. Dan. Nice to meet you. So yeah, so Dan Hoffman, I'm a leader in our finance transformation global practice. So work very closely with David. And the topic of AI is very important to me because just like David mentioned, this is the next evolution of transformation for the finance space. So when we think about the different waves that finance organizations go through, AI is really going to be the next disruptor that we need to move towards. So this is a big topic for us, especially with our clients. And last but not least, Kevin. Thanks, Richard. Really honored to be here. Thanks for the opportunity and jazzed about being with our colleagues from IBM and Truqua. Big fan. Why this topic's important to me. So I had the opportunity to work with a number of development teams that were, I guess, at times on the bleeding edge, product teams that were at times on the bleeding edge. And they had introduced some early AI at SAP 12, 13 years ago. And that's blossomed into machine learning-based AI and whatnot. And at the end of the day, I agree with the gentleman, this is the next major evolution and this is the inflection point. So I'm just excited to see how the road continues with generative AI being the next big thing. First of all, thanks for your intros and uh, welcome everybody. AI seems to be the answer to every problem at the moment. And there are a boundless list of potential use cases for both. And I hate to say traditional AI because AI is relatively new anyway, but also AI and generative AI. So what impact do you think AI will have on modern enterprises and specifically on the finance functions? So I can kick that off. So from our perspective, we're seeing a lot of integration between the different functions, even outside of finance to the finance function with these AI use cases. Um, one of the examples we like to give, and we even see this in professional services, is the idea of when you sign a contract or when you have terms with clients and you're trying to figure out different mechanisms to bill those clients, 
AI has the ability to connect those upward streams or information to help you have better insights and actions from the finance point of view. So you could think of this as the traditional lead to cash process within the finance function, having that contracting lead front end of the process and having AI actually be able to marry that with your traditional financial order to cash functions to change the way you do your billing to realize capital or have increased capital within the year. That's a a very specific example, but this marriage of supply chain and finance, um, sales and finance, and these other functions, that integration is really where we're seeing a lot of use cases blossom. To add to that, I mean, if you look at some of those use cases, like around contracts, it's around unstructured information and, and, and where traditional AI has been really centered around structured information and finance and a lot of the things that we do around structured information, whether it's information captured in the ledger or a coding block or calculations that are made off of it or decision trees or these kinds of logic. It's always been very quantitative and off of structured information while generative AI is opening up all of this unstructured information and tapping into that. So using these examples of now going outside the typical boundaries of finance into say like contract where it's unstructured information, making structure of it and then cross-relating it to a structured database of your invoices and being able to then say, okay, like what invoices are in compliance, one aren't, and being able to make those connections or taking policies and legislation or regulatory information and market data, and then bring that to then help guide the finance. This is the new marriage because we've always had technologies that did work with unstructured, but this is just bringing it to a new level. Yeah. And just to maybe follow on to that, I think everybody will agree that the finance department is almost emblematic of the, you got to do it better, faster, and more cost effectively. And that's a message, that's a mantra that they know only so well. We see huge prospects for helping them continue down that journey. Finance is no secret or is no stranger to cost effective, to labor arbitrage with shared services centers. And now it's all about automation. Well, this is the next step in automation use cases that I'll even talk about a use case later that involves our friend Jewel that shows the power of something like generative AI. So this is the next step helping the finance department around that, along that pragmatic road of doing things better, cheaper, and more cost effectively to build off that a little, right? In the past, we would typically look at historical information to try to infer future results, right? Year to years, traditional trajectories. Then when AI models started to come into the fold, if we think about like the FP&A function, there's this idea of, okay, we can train a model to give us specific insights on revenue, signing, certain factors that matter. What's interesting with the generative AI, as opposed to having to build a model and then saying those insights are going to be on the five, six things that model produces, you can actually tell it to go build a model or build a view based on what you need to see. So that smarter, better, faster for cheaper, that's really where that comes into play because the idea is really focused on, I don't need to plan six months in advance for the insight that I want, the forward looking insight, I can ask for it and it can produce that. And again, that's that unstructured data David's talking about really being able to quickly be structured and produce an insight that we can use. So. One of the concepts we've actually talked about with our clients is this idea of the virtual CFO, which is the idea of I can ask a question or I can ask for a financial insight and I don't have to wait for a team to model it to get back to me. That's the generative factor that makes this so interesting. Well, and there's another, I think, big paradigm shift 
around the user experience, right? So in the early days, and I can think maybe this is like a decade, over a decade, where we were at a whiteboard with a PhD in data science and, and charting out all these algorithms, and no one in the business really understood this uh, market model that we were building and, and understand the predictions that was going to make generative AI, the face of it, if you will, is this almost like very human, natural language experience of interacting. And that also is what's fueling a lot of the interest around this. Anybody that's been out there, you know, with ChatGPT, it took data science and made it very accessible, very relatable. And now all of a sudden you don't have to have all of these PhDs acting as translators around how to actually use this technology and apply it. And so one of the first use cases like at IBM internally, we have a tool we call Ask HR, which is a uh, HR chatbot. And I know I, we mentioned Jewel and that was born out of success factors, right? In the HR function. But as you start to look at the power of that for understanding like HR policy and guiding you through areas where you need a lot of specialized knowledge, it doesn't take a big leap of imagination to see how that would look like for Ask finance or for a virtual CFO or for a co-pilot helping you through, getting you through your day in the accounting function in a very natural way. So ironically, I, I look at this as technology that can actually make technology and these applications and processes more human friendly. I think that's quite important because, I mean, we've got so much data accessible to us in our daily lives now and how to access that data, how to put it in the business context is always the challenge that I see. And, and being able to ask that question, I work in a large software company, as you know, and we have lots of HR policies. And sometimes it would be great to just be able to ask the system where to find this bit of information because it's there somewhere. What's interesting, too, that we're finding as we're starting to build out these AI models, the skills you actually need now is not what's the actual outcome that's being produced, but how do you prompt or how do you need to pull in the right factors to get you what you need. There's this concept of prompting. And even I was talking about contracting earlier, really knowing what is the deviation? What are the elements of a contract that you need to understand to maximize cash benefits, right? And so understanding where the value roots from is really becoming the skill we're looking for versus knowing the formula or how to build the model itself. And that's an interesting shift in what's being required out of the finance function. It's really knowing how to ask the question. Yeah. And to that point, one of the things Dan alluded to, and maybe it was unintentional or not, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that one. You started talking about what the future looks like, right? And that brings in the element of predictive, right? Combining predictive with AI, right? Organize the unstructured data, then use that to model scenarios using predictive capabilities. I mean, truly, you said it in the beginning, Richard boundless use cases. And you can add on to predictive, okay, you can predict what's going to happen, but you can also prescribe the answers as well. What are the solutions? Yeah. And what happens if we do this instead? Yeah, exactly. I think we may have covered the next question, but I'll ask it just in case you've got any other viewpoints. What financial use cases do you already see or envision for your customers and clients? I'll start this one off real quickly because I think uh, it's going to be very short. So rather than go through details of very interesting use case, I'll invite the uh, listeners to actually see it for themselves. Those who've been monitoring SAP will know that we just did a major moment 
what we call a moment for our RISE offering. And there's a webinar available at sap.com. I think Richard will include it in the uh, podcast information, uh, Rise into the Future. And encourage you to watch the whole thing. But if you'd really like to a realistic, what I'll call a Gen AI supported scenario around collections and disputes, Gen AI, in this case, it was based on ChatGPT, but Gen AI helps interpret why you might have a potential dispute, helps you organize all the information necessary to resolve that dispute, and then it actually helps you present that information. If you go to that webinar at TimeSpot 2330, I, like I said, I invite you to watch the whole thing, but if you start at TimeSpot 2330 and watch through the collections and disputes, you'll see not only Gen AI at work, but Joule at work. And you'll learn about Joule in the webcast or in the webinar as well. Joule is a basically an assistant that's based on Gen AI. So fascinating use case around collections and disputes. Yeah. And, and what's interesting in those use cases is that it's a combination of like traditional AI techniques, like machine learning to help you like categorize as well as giving you contextual information and allowing you to interact or even like generate commentary or text along with just having a modern process and access to better data and analytics. So you combine all of these things and then it, it starts to be pretty powerful. But when you talk about use cases specific to generative AI, a lot of times we get questions around what's the difference between traditional AI and generative AI. And a lot of that is around, like if you, you take the word chat GBT and you break down what GBT stands for, generative pre-trained models. And what that translates to is that this technology is good at creating content, generating content. So, but it's also good at reading content as well. So it can you know, scour pages and pages of information, whether that's a contract or policy or whatever, and do a summary and extract out the key points and the highlights and do a summary. And then as well, then write up something based off of that and then go ahead and do your write-up. So if you think about like you, as a user interacting and you're maybe new to an organization and you don't understand everything and maybe you don't have time to sit through all the training and do all this, you now have knowledge at your fingertips where you can just sit there and say, look, I, I didn't sit through the training. What do I need to know for this job right now? Don't give me everything. Just give me what I need to know to do this specific task at this point in time. Can you tell me? And then if you aren't, say you're new into the field of finance, Generative AI, you can start a dialogue with this interface that then they'll say, okay, well, do you understand these basic concepts? And they could even take you to like 101, right? Or just say, hey, this is the issue. Here's the information. And if you're an expert, you go you know, forward. So it can personalize that whole experience, right? Based off of that. And I think like Jewel and these demos that are starting to come out from the various vendors start to let you see, okay, what well, is truly possible now with this time. And we're going to be seeing it. It's going to be ubiquitous. We'll see it. And our mobile devices, we'll see it on the Microsoft Office products and productivity tools that are out there um, in our meetings and podcasts like this. You could just get a summary right at the end. It'll be able to produce. What's interesting about what David's talking about, too, is we're also seeing an evolution in terms of AI and how generative AI takes it to the next level. So the, we had the examples with the billing contracting and even the FP&A with the predictive forecasting. But there was a, a use case we actually saw recently with one of our large consumer product uh, customers where they had an AI model that was really successful that basically would look at 
if I want to give a discount on this product, a condiment, I want to take it down by 20% price. What is that going to do from a cannibalistic point of view in terms of reducing revenue, profit, and run those different scenarios? This was a model they already had before the generative AI waves start. What was interesting to David's point is if you don't really know the exact things to look for, you could look at this scenario-based AI model, but not get the right insights. Where generative AI gets interesting is you can ask that model, what is an optimal scenario? Or I need to go into a new space or a new region. What's the best outcome? And it can properly tune the AI model to produce the result you're looking for versus you having to figure that out. That's an example of AI and how generative AI amplifies and takes the next level. And this is a, a real use case that we actually see with one of our clients. And, and Richard, I want to just take one second. I, I commended Dan earlier for bringing up the predictive angle. Now I'm going to um, commend David for boiling things down to the pure essence of it, right? If you take away all the use cases that surround this, what we're really talking about is being able to get the information I need to right at the moment, right? People used to say when HP launched the calculator, everybody's going to forget to do math, right? But I don't think that's where generative AI is taking us. It's taking us to a place where I know how to do math so I can put something in on the calculator. If I know how to ask the question, I've got to know how to learn about it too, right? I need to know how to phrase the question so I can learn back about it. So David, you boiled it down and you said, tell me what I need to know right now to solve this problem and I'll assimilate it, I'll learn it and I'll make a human governed judgment over it. So kudos for bringing it to its essence. In May of this year, SAP and IBM announced a partnership named SAP Start. So how will this partnership help bring the promise of AI to the real people, the end users in the finance department, for example? And how will it keep up with the increasing demands on them? Because most finance people are being asked, as you said, to do more with less. How will AI help there, and specifically the SAP Start? With all these great benefits, and Obviously, with all this, when you just go out there and start playing with ChatGPT yourself and you can see the power of what this technology can offer. But when you start to think about applying it for the enterprise and business and finance, you start to realize there's all these issues around how to actually deliver this in an enterprise environment as it relates to security, privacy, ethics. And we go by different terms like responsible AI or ethical AI. We're held in enterprises and regulated entities. You're held to a higher standard in order to apply this. And so with these partnerships, that is where I think our organization as IBM, we have a really strong offering around thinking through all of these impacts, right? And we're starting to see like regulations and movements. I think China is a little bit farther ahead on some of this, or at least around personal information. I just noticed, I think it was when ChatGPT first hit the scene, I did a search on myself and found all kinds of information about myself in this engine. I just before this podcast, I tried it again and it was, it evolved. It said, Hey, this is personal information. I can't provide it. You're David Dixon's not public figure. You can find stuff about people that are in the news, but when you start to try to look people, individuals up, it's now smarter. And that, in that kind of ethic you're seeing be brought in, but there's a lot more that has to be done around this in terms of making sure 
because these models, they're trained on massive data sets and billions, if not trillions of parameters. And the internet itself is biased, right? There's all yeah. kinds of bias and bias in there and hate rants potentially on Reddit that ChatGPT could have picked up. And how do you now take it out of those models, right? So, and try to avoid those biases that are already out there. And so that's where I think a lot of investment and attention and things are going to shift, especially as it relates to finance, where governance and risk is all part of the finance function. There's also, I think as well, an element of proven use cases being easier to deploy. So as this partnership blossoms and as Watson X use cases come to life, then when you're a client and you're saying, okay, I want to pursue this type of AI model or use case, the idea that you don't have to start from scratch or you can leverage the, the relationship or this partnership to quickly deploy or have a proven use case. And to David's point there, there'll be answers on governance, trustworthiness, where should the data sources be both external and internal to make this work? That's really where a lot of the value comes from in terms of investment time spent and trying to get to that outcome you're looking for with these use cases. Oh yeah, no, thanks for that, Dan. Cause I, that's finishing a thought I was trying to get to with the, the GPT when I was talking about pre-trained, right? There are PhDs involved in this process. It's just Unless you've got a couple million dollars to spend to train these models, that's what they're you know doing is they're pre-training them. And then to use them, you just have to tune them or, or prompt engineer them. And that's what, yeah, your point is that somebody else has done that investment for you, spent the millions of dollars building these models that are very big. And then now you just take it and plug it in and, and tune it or, or what we call prompt engineer to make effective use of it. But therein also lies the challenge is that these models are huge, these large language models, very big, consume a lot of, and you may not need trillions of parameters to get good use out of it. And, and the next evolution, I think, is going to be smaller, more targeted models that are specific to a domain where the data is much more controlled and much more governed in terms of how the model was built and maintained. And then arguably, they're saying better at whatever job it is. So if you're reading contracts, a little bit different than if you're just having a dialogue with ChatGBT about what its thoughts are on sports or recent news. What's interesting to play off that too is that the last big disruptor was the cloud, right? And the idea of how do we move to the cloud? And there was this idea of, do we go big bang? Or, and then obviously IBM pushed for the hybrid cloud approach, which was this idea of, okay, if we containerize and move into batches to the cloud or have elements in the cloud versus off the cloud, there's going to be more value. It's easier to digest. AI is going to be similar. That's why we're harping on this concept of use cases is when you have, when you containerize in theory, AI use cases, and then you're able to replicate and expand on that. It makes it easier, more digestible for firms to get into the AI world without going chat GBT, big bang approach of trying to have one AI model to answer all the questions, right? That's why I believe we've had that strategy of chapter one was this hybrid cloud approach. Chapter two is the AI logic is it's that it's really the same mindset of how you approach this for how we, we bring this to the customers. Kevin. And Richard, it occurs to me that we've done the listeners unintentional disservice by not t talking a little bit about the partnership. And let me start that by saying it's no surprise to me that SAP and IBM tied up on SAP Start. And I'm still learning about Start and I'm still reading, but if you think about it, where does your laptop office automation tool start? It starts at the Start menu. SAP Start is it's about having a place to start 
a place to ask Jewel questions to move into your analysis and help you prioritize your work and whatnot. And you colleagues from IBM, keep me honest on this one. SAP Start is based on Watson X use cases. Uh, there may be other things in there, but there are mixes behind that. So no surprise to me. I mean, I don't know what AI historians are going to say, but I think Watson, named after their venerable Thomas Watson, the AI historians should give Watson its due. It's one of the precursors, if not one of the founders of AI. What do you say to that, yeah, guys? When you, you look back at the history, right? If For those that remember, it was IBM, right? That with AI and Watson that defeated mm -hmm. the chess champion back in the day and that won Jeopardy mm -hmm. against the person. So there's always been these human AI challenges through the history. But now bring it to modern age, Watson X is the latest version and brand of our software offering, and it com is comprised of Watson X AI, Watson X data, and Watson X stock governance. And that governance piece is what I was harping on a little bit earlier that really differentiates it as a platform because enterprises and SAP also talks about the responsibility, right, that large vendors have to its, its, its customer base to you make sure that, yeah, we're applying this technology in the, in the most responsible, ethical uh, way. Uh, possible. What's what's funny or interesting is the the call out to to Jeopardy and the chess example is uh, to me those are use cases, right? And so it's the same thing here where it's okay. You're now trying to bring use cases to actual business functions and business decisions. It, it, the the concept is still the same. It's just the magnitude, the sources of data. That's why you need this governance, the data structure, picking the right models from an AI uh, point of view to make this come to life. And so it's just interesting how that core concept still stays true today. Yeah. Kevin mentioned about companies starting the process and you have to start somewhere. And we've touched on this a little bit, but I'll continue with the question. What are some of the best practices to consider when formulating an enterprise-wide AI and strategy? What would you like to tell the listeners to help them get on the straight and narrow road to a comprehensive AI strategy and how can IBM and SAP help? This is going to be repetitive to what was said before, but it really starts with picking your use cases, right? You need to zone into where you're going to focus. You don't want to boil the ocean on this journey. So really knowing where the key areas you want to zone into. David called out the Ask HR bot. Talent was a use case that IBM internally focused on right away. Certain companies that have client or customer service, right? Call centers or a specific area that is of high importance to see value, picking those use cases early and as well as making sure there's a way to govern those use cases from a trustworthy point of view so that it's not hallucinating or providing bad information is really the two key elements to starting. Um, and then from there, once you have your key use cases, you can really zone in and prove them out as opposed to trying to have all AI across the enterprise day one. Yeah, and I would add to that is I think our industry is realizing you do have to start experimenting early with these technologies to get ahead of them. The traditional notion of, you know, we'll wait for these things to mature and we'll wait for it to be ready. By the time you're waiting for it to be ready and tangible, you are now way behind your peer group because there is a lot of change management and people and organizational things that have to happen in order to be able to move fast. So you don't just all of a sudden wake up, roll out of bed and say, I'm going to adopt this technology and I'm all in. There are certain strategic, structural education, understanding, 
So as you start to experiment with these use cases, you understand then, okay, maybe it doesn't go anywhere, but you understand that, hey, what this technology is useful for and how it can be applied. And if these things start to happen, then this becomes very real and we got to move on it or a competitive advantage and first mover advantages that when the things are becoming, depending on the industry you're at, but there's different levels of competitiveness, especially competing with uh, leveraging technology in the most effective way. It's not just about the technology. It's also the people process policies around it. And that doesn't happen overnight. So you need to start getting exposure to this stuff earlier, but also attracting the talent too, that they're ultimately going to be needed right, to pull this off. So to just add a little more color to, to what Dan was saying. If you think of the large technology transformations in the past, it would be five years, even longer sometimes. Now we're seeing transformations happen in three years. Now we're being told two years, one year, and even these AI deployments are being told to be done in weeks versus months. So this idea of really true agile transformation where it's get going, get something tangible quickly, and then build and iterate and refine that. AI is really the ultimate version of that concept because if you're waiting to have the perfect model or the perfect build out, you're going to be behind. Yeah. You got to get something going now. You got to get a use case now and you can refine on that. Yeah, you love the perfect model for six months ago. Right, exactly. And I'll add one point from my side to that and say, don't do it in a vacuum, right? Innovation can be expensive. Building large language models, expensive. Deciding on your use cases, expensive. Trust people who've been there. And without sounding commercial here, I'll say, trust partners like IBM and SAP. IBM's been working on generative AI in some form or the other for decades. SAP has also been working on it for years and years. I mentioned we've had AI since back in the 2010s or earlier when we were thinking about it. And we've worked with customers throughout the years to figure out what works and what doesn't works. And so whether it's us or it's someone else, don't do it in a vacuum. Do it with someone who's been there so you avoid the pitfalls of an innovation yeah. money pit, if you will, and trust your partners like IBM and SAP. Yeah, to give some examples, right? These large language models are very big, as we mentioned before, and they can consume a lot of resources. And there's all this whole green movement concerns around the resources that they do consume. And you have to start to think about, okay, how do we pare that down? The other thing that does prompt engineering these and learning how to actually get the right results, uh, asking it the right questions and feeding it the right data. So it, there's a whole maintenance around this. So once you have your use case, then you got to figure out how are we going to sustain and maintain these models over the longer period? So there, and then there's all these different models out there. So which one do you start with? Do you start with Google's? Do you start with Microsoft's? All these various models out there for different use cases. Which one do you start with? How do you effectively prompt engineer them? These are all things that are going to take time for organizations to really get an appreciation. The key is to start because you can't get too far behind. It's hard to believe, but we're over 30 minutes into the podcast. So I think it's time for me to ask my last question. <laughs> And it's the same question that we ask all of our guests. In a sentence or two, from your point of view, what is the future of ERP? So I, I can start with this and going back to something I commented a little bit earlier is that I think the whole experience of working with an ERP system yep. is going to change. And just as we saw the impact of like mobile or cloud or business networks, we're going to see 
I think a more human friendly side, because this is one area that has been traditionally a big pain point for organizations. These ERP packages have not been human friendly and some have gotten lost with these implementations and transformations. So the whole change management side, I think of ERP and the user experience going to change, but that also, I think the business value and the uh, business cases and the payback with so much of the enterprise, I would say bigger stakes, bigger paybacks with how you uh, redesign uh, for these solutions. My view is that really ERP is going to become a much more integrated, agile, configurable, and AI-enabled platform. So what I mean by that is the connection to outside systems, information data, whether it's your CRM, other external data, will become much more infused into the ERP. The ability to change what you need out of your ERP, leveraging AI generative models, is going to become much more of a day-to-day -day common use of the ERP. And so therefore, the user experience is going to be much more flexible in the future. Kevin. Mine's one sentence. Uh, the future of ERP is to help customers continue to future-proof their businesses so they can focus on delivering customer value. This is the next step in the evolution from MRP to ERP to the cloud to you name it. It's helping customers future-proof their business. David, Dan, Kevin, thanks for a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. And thanks everyone for listening. Please mark us as a favorite so you can get regular updates and information about future episodes. We will share a lot of the content that we've talked about on the show notes. But until next time, from all of us, thank you for discussing the future of ERP.